Please note, this episode contains descriptions of battle that may not be suitable for some audiences. It was a bloody holocaust for the short time it lasted. The small wooden slopes were strewn with American and enemy dead and of those in the agony of dying. Three days before the fall of Kurgador, the Japanese increased the tempo of their artillery barrage. An intense and murderous fire of all calibers of artillery, ranging up to 240 millimeters, was directed against the northern side of the wooden and rocky island. Japanese batteries located and concealed in the ravines and hills of southern Bataan hurled approximately 30,000 shells across the straits during the previous 48 hours into us. Much of our concealed artillery, as well as machine guns, were destroyed. Enemy aircraft overhead continued their reign of heavy bombs. Hordes of Japanese soldiers in tanks in an amphibious operation swarmed ashore and established a beachhead on the northeastern part of the Krigador Island in the pre-dawn hours. Columns of our men who maintained the beach defense position in Krigador's western areas poured through the tunnels which pierced Molenta Peak and augmented our forces entrenched near Calvary Point on Krigador's eastern side, engaging the enemy in a last bitter struggle. This is Left Behind. Welcome to Left Behind, a podcast about the people left behind when the United States surrendered the Philippines in the early days of World War II. I'm your host and researcher, Anastasia Harmon. My great-grandfather was a prisoner of war in the Philippines, and his memoir inspired me to tell the stories of his fellow captives. If you, like me, believe it's important for people to hear this relatively unknown part of World War II history, please consider sharing this episode with a friend. Word of mouth is the number one way people find new podcasts, so by sharing, you're helping to keep these important stories alive. Well, we've finally come to it, the last battle before the entire Philippine nation fell into enemy hands. That's the Japanese invasion of Corregidor Island. This battle led to my great-grandfather's imprisonment as a prisoner of war. In fact, this episode opened with his description of that battle. The main Allied player in the Corregidor battle was the 4th Marine Regiment, who were the first line of defense against the Japanese landing. The Marines had prepared the Corregidor beaches for months in anticipation of such an invasion. In many ways, this episode picks up where episode 36 left off. That episode's about Lieutenant Colonel Beecher and his Marine 1st Battalion's preparations for an anticipated Japanese landing. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that episode, you may want to do so before listening to this, just to get a better understanding of what the Marines had already done in preparation. This is episode 44, so you'll have to scroll back a little bit on the podcast list to get to episode 36, or I'll put the link in the show description. Also, this episode is a little bit different than most. Instead of focusing on a couple of U.S. Marines and their life stories and wartime experiences, I'll be focusing on the 4th Marines as a whole. I researched a few Marines for this episode, and I'll include very short bios about them. But because the invasion is so multifaceted, just focusing on the actions of those few men didn't seem right. I mean, 
so many men proved and sacrificed themselves in this battle. Also, by this point in the war, the 4th Marines had been augmented by military personnel from all branches. These men had largely escaped from Bataan in early April, and include a unit of Philippine scouts. Also joining the Marines were the men of the Naval Battalion, who were the focus of episode 13. I want to call this out now because when I refer to Marines and beach defenses, I'm including these men in that term as well. After all, some of them were told when ordered down to the beaches, well, you're a Marine now. Let's jump in. The 4th Marine Regiment had spent nearly 15 years in Shanghai, China, when, on November 14, 1941, President Franklin D. Roosevelt ordered the regiment to leave the city. The U.S. realized that hostilities with Japan were moving ever closer to reality, and these Marines were needed elsewhere. There were around 800 Marines in Shanghai, and Lieutenant Colonel Beecher recalled, There was a general feeling of uneasiness and uncertainty in the air. U.S. Marines were stationed in Shanghai, China, as well as in Tianjin and Peking to protect American citizens during the Chinese Civil War, which broke out in August 1927. That civil war would, in 1947, lead to communist takeover of China. But the Marines stationed in Shanghai were so far from any action that they lived a kind of cushy life. One Marine named Frank Pysyk who I spotlighted in the very first episode of Left Behind, was in Tianjin, China in the late 1920s. After six months there, he wrote home, saying, When we came here, I thought we'd have lots of trouble and be real soldiers, but so far it's been just the opposite. We have a large ex-German castle as barracks, the interior of which is entirely finished with marble. We have better accommodations here than we have in the U.S. This is an ideal place. Adding to their comfort, they lived two blocks from an English country club, which the Marine officers were allowed to use. Pysyk continued, Swimming pools, tennis, it's one of those large clubs for which one pays about $100 per month membership dues in the States. I like China. When the 4th Marines would finally arrive in the Philippines, their leaders worried that the easy life in China had gotten them, well, soft. Following President Roosevelt's orders to leave Shanghai, the 4th Marines were paraded, band and all, down the Shanghai streets, where they boarded two ships. Once en route, they discovered their destination, Olongapo Navy Yard, about two hours west of Manila on the Philippines' largest island of Luzon. Their task? Assist in preparations for anticipated hostilities with Japan. The ships reached Olongapo on November 30th and December 1st, 1941. At the Navy Yard, the Marines bunked in warehouses that had been converted into barracks. And they started training, day and night, in the nearby Bataan Wilds. Among these Marines were Lieutenant Colonel George Hamilton, Corporal Edwin Franklin, and Captain Noel Castle. Lieutenant Colonel George Hamilton was a Florida native born in 1893 to a family with deep Southern roots and ancestors who fought in the American Revolution. Lieutenant Colonel Hamilton was a career Marine, having joined at age 24 in 1917. He spent the 1920s serving with the Marines in Haiti and in various locations around the United States. He married and had two children and settled in San Diego, California until the late 1930s when he was called into the 4th Marines and sent to Shanghai. But then his wife died in 1938 and he came back to the U.S. to raise his children. A couple years later, 
in June 1940, he was again sent to Shanghai, and his children, ages 10 and 12, joined him until November of that year, when they sailed home, seemingly without a chaperone, to live with their uncle. Adolescents traveling alone on a one-month sea journey, that's kind of incredible to me, considering all the hoops I had to jump through when my son traveled as an unaccompanied minor on a three-hour flight to visit his grandparents. Different times. Corporal Edwin Franklin was born in Iowa, but his family bounced from there to California and then to a Kansas farm before he enlisted in the Marines at age 17 in 1937. Before the 21-year-old joined the 4th Marines in China in 1941, he had spent time stationed in Puerto Rico, Cuba, and the Panama Canal Zone. Captain Noel Castle, born in 1911, was raised in Washington, D.C. He attended the University of Maryland, where he majored in engineering and was an ROTC major. In 1936, he joined the Marines as a second lieutenant. He excelled at marksmanship and became part of the Marine Corps Rifle and Pistol Marksmanship Team, which traveled around for competitions. After three seasons on the team, he won the top honor for marksmanship in the nation. So in other words, he was a good shot. In May 1940, the Marines transferred him to Shanghai, and he soon became his assigned company's executive officer. He was also famed for having a pair of pearl-handled 45 pistols, which he wore under his arms. Japan attacked the Philippines a week after the Marines arrived at Alangapo. Thus, the training time the Marine leadership had hoped for was woefully short. In episode 36, that's the one about Colonel Beecher, I go into details of the Marines' movements in the early days of the war. Basically, when most everyone else in the U.S. and Filipino forces were moving to Bataan in late December 1941 and early January 42, the Marines went to Corregidor to prepare beach defenses for that island. Episode 36 also details the Marines setting up the beach defenses on Corregidor Island. And that brings us to the evening of May 4th, 1942. A Filipino civilian guided a small fishing boat onto a beach of Corregidor Island. He would have seen destruction and chaos everywhere, the results of heavy Japanese artillery and air bombardment. The previous day, those enemy forces had unleashed a particularly devastating barrage of firepower aimed at the 4th Marines beach defenses on the northern side of Corregidor Island. But this civilian wasn't interested in the state of Kurgador's beach defenses. He was carrying an important message from the Philippine intelligence remaining on Bataan. The civilian handed off the message, and a runner soon placed it in the hands of Lieutenant Colonel George Hamilton. After peering at the writing for a moment and finding himself unable to read the note, Hamilton asked one of his sergeants to read it aloud. Expect enemy landing on the night May 5th to 6th. Hush, hush, hush. Don't say another word. Do you want to start a panic? Lieutenant Hamilton anxiously jumped in. He grabbed the note and beckoned the sergeant to follow him to visit Colonel Howard, who oversaw the 4th Marines forces. The sergeant again read the note aloud. The next morning, so we're in May 5th now, Colonel Howard called a meeting of the 4th Marine senior officers, including Hamilton and his sergeant. The small think tank discussed whether the Japanese would attack at night on the 5th or near dawn on the 6th. 
If they thought the attack would happen at night, then the beaches would be 100% manned with Marines at nightfall of the 5th. If, on the other hand, the attack likely wouldn't happen until dawn, well, they'd leave those beach defenses 50% manned until one hour before dawn so that the men could eat and be rested for the expected attack. The senior officers discussed the options, at times spiritedly, but eventually all voted to let the men rest until one hour before dawn, then fully man the beach defenses. Then, perhaps surprisingly, one officer asked Hamilton's sergeant's opinion. According to Marine historian J. Michael Miller, this sergeant, the only enlisted man in the room, had studied Japanese tactics in China and said that enemy landings were invariably made at night, one hour before the full light of the moon. Colonel Howard thanked him for his opinion but did not change the regiment's orders. The men would be allowed to sleep for a pre-dawn landing. As it turned out though, the colonel should have listened to that sergeant because a night attack an hour before the moon's full light is exactly what the Japanese were planning. Across Manila Bay, on the south part of Bataan Peninsula's eastern shore, Japanese military leaders were preparing a landing force to attack Corregidor Island's northeastern beaches on the night of May 5th to 6th, 1942. Corregidor Island, as you've probably heard me mention before, is shaped like a tadpole, with a roughly one-mile diameter head and a three-mile-long narrow tail that tapers to a point at the island's easternmost edge. This tail portion is squiggled, so to speak. It bends slightly up and then slightly down, then up again and then down. From here on out, I'm gonna describe the island in terms of left and right, as if you were looking at a map with the northern part of the island in the top of the map. In describing this verbally, I think that left and right will be easier terms to follow and visualize rather than east and west. Also, while you're visualizing, Bataan Peninsula is about two miles north of Corregidor's northern beaches, so that's at the very top of the map. Just to the right of the point where the tail meets the head is Melinta Hill, and dug into Melinta Hill was a labyrinth-like system of tunnels known as the Melinta Tunnel. During the five months of war so far, the tunnels had become the U.S. headquarters offices, barracks, hospital, storage area, and more. In other words, it was the central stronghold and headquarters of the Allied forces still fighting in the Philippines after Bataan's fall in early April 1942. Thus, Melinta Hill was the Japanese landing force's goal. Take Melinta Hill and conquer the Allies. Conquer the Allies, and the entire Philippine nation falls into Japanese hands. Thus, capturing Melinta Hill was the whole point of the attack. The island's head portion, on the island's far left, is elevated above the ocean, its sides descending into the mouth of Manila Bay through long ravines and high cliffs. However, the tail portion, on the right side of Malinta Hill, was not as far above sea level, although it was somewhat hilly and it had smaller cliffs that lined the coast. But it had beaches that would make a more ideal spot for initial landings of troops and tanks than on the head. The northern side of Kurgador's tail, which again is facing Bataan Peninsula, are three points. Infantry point, cavalry point, and north point. These three points are located on the squiggled parts of the tail. And since they're important to understanding the landings, I'll describe the geography as best I can. 
I've also put maps on the podcast website and Facebook page, so you can look at those to get a better understanding when you have time to take a look. Infantry Point juts out into Manila Bay, about a third of a mile to the right of Malinta Hill, as the crow flies, although the trails and roads to get there from Malinta Hill weren't so direct. From Infantry Point, the coastline heads in a shallow southeasterly direction, so that's to the right, for about half a mile, then shoots quickly north again to create the second point, called Cavalry Point. From Cavalry Point, the shore heads to the right for about a third of a mile before turning to the southeast and creating the third point, North Point. Thus, we now have four geographic locations, Melinda Hill, Infantry Point, Cavalry Point, North Point, all separated by a third to a half of a mile. The Japanese plan to land their first wave of forces near Cavalry Point at high tide on the night of May 5th to 6th. The second wave would land slightly to the left of the first between Infantry Point and Cavalry Point. Infantry Point, you'll recall, is the point closest to Malinta Hill. Once landed, the first wave would head south toward a small airstrip and the second wave would head west toward Malinta Hill. In the meantime, Japanese artillery on Bataan would bombard the area between Malinta Hill and Infantry Point. So that's on the leftmost portion of the planned landing locations. The beaches where the Japanese intended to land were defended by 1st Battalion of the 4th Marines, who, as I've said before, had spent the last several months setting up various beach landing defenses. The Japanese knew this, and according to Army historian Lewis Morton, The Japanese artillery had begun its preparatory fire on May 1st, and by the evening of the 5th had laid waste to the entire north shore of Corregidor. In total, Japanese air forces had flown 614 missions over Corregidor in the seven days before May 5th, dropping more than 1,700 bombs that totaled 365 tons of explosives. And that was just the air raids. The artillery from Bataan was hammering the island as well. It was during this heavy bombardment that 20 nurses escaped Corregidor on seaplanes, which I covered in episode 40, and the last submarine evacuated 25 people from the island, see episode 42. Historian Morton continued, On May 5th, the Japanese had had reconnaissance and bombardment aircraft over Corregidor constantly to report on the movement of troops on the island and to soften up the enemy defenses. Thus, the Japanese leaders believed they had fairly good knowledge of the defenses awaiting their landing on Corregidor. After sunset on May 5th, some 2,000 Japanese troops quietly sang the prayer to the dawn as they loaded into 19 landing crafts, each carrying between 30 and 170 men. Five tanks were also loaded onto barges. Prayer to the dawn was a Japanese imperial era song. I found very little information about this song, its lyrics, and its history. But what I did find leads me to believe that the song you've been hearing in the background for the last few moments is the one that the Japanese troops would have been singing as they boarded the landing barges. One suggested English translation of the lyrics goes like this. Those voices and those faces. My wife and children honor my service as they wave tattered flags far away, floating among the clouds. A grand transport ship, farewell to my prosperous country. I pray to the distant imperial palace to swear my determination to the heavens. Both my uniform and my bearded face are painted with the mud of hundreds of miles. 
With my horse by my side, throughout our hardship, we have fought several battles. For the sake of the Emperor, dying is the duty of a soldier. In my smiling brother-in-arms' field cap remains the traces of a few resentful bullets. Along with this wounded horse, I have gone three days without food or water. I scribble this down under the moonlight in dedication to my life so far. Down that mountain and through this river, the red blood of the loyal flows to deliver the homeland by daybreak, this triumphant song of a rising Asia. This song obviously has many references to the military mindset instilled, or perhaps even indoctrinated, into the lay Japanese soldier, such as the line, quote, for the sake of the emperor, dying is the duty of a soldier, close quote. Sadly, many of the 2,000 Japanese soldiers boarding the barges on Bataan would die that night because, from almost the moment of takeoff from Bataan, that well-laid plan fell apart. First off, the tides around Bataan and Corregidor were unexpected, and the landing crafts had trouble navigating the waters. The tide off Bataan flowed west, out of Manila Bay. Historian Lewis Morton wrote, The Japanese took it for granted that the current off Corregidor would be flowing west also. Contrary to expectation, the current at the target flowed in the opposite direction, and the landing force was naturally swept away. Instead of arriving off Corregidor between infantry and cavalry points, the selected landing site, the first wave of landing craft approached the island at a point about 1,000 yards to the east, near North Point. Just to be 100% clear, the first wave of Japanese landing crafts landed about 1,000 yards to the right of their intended landing point. Okay, back to Morton. Most of the officers who had planned the landing had not dreamed that there would be any slip-ups. They thought the peculiar shape of the island would forestall any errors. But, as one Japanese officer later wrote, quote, The island lost its shape as it was approached, and it did not serve as a particular landmark. The tide around Corregidor also made the two Japanese landing forces change positions. You'll recall that the first wave, or battalion, was supposed to land at Cavalry Point, with the second battalion landing slightly to the left, between cavalry and infantry points. Instead, they landed to the right of both those points, and in reverse positions, with the second battalion landing to the right of the first battalion, rather than to the left. Also, the two battalions landed much farther away from each other than expected. Thus, a Japanese colonel later said, the division was forced to start fighting under disadvantageous conditions. A long, desperate struggle and heavy sacrifices were required to break the situation. The American and Filipino Marines, for their part, met the landing Japanese head-on. First off, Marine historian Michael Miller tells us that starting at 10.40 p.m. on May 5th, Japanese artillery from Bataan opened fire on the beach defenses to the left of the intended Japanese landings between Malinta Hill and Infantry Point. Miller continues. Supplies of food and water for the Marines were just reaching the beach positions when landing boats were reported offshore. A second Japanese artillery concentration pounded the beach defenses for six to seven minutes. The shelling was particularly intense, ending with phosphorus shells. Three to four minutes of silence followed the last shell when word reached Lieutenant Cole Beecher at battalion headquarters that seven Japanese landing craft were nearing the beach. The Marines flipped on their powerful searchlights, aiming them at the landing crafts. 
American and Filipino guns were soon firing on the Japanese barges. One gun battery near North Point had never revealed its location to Japanese forces, so the Japanese didn't know it existed. Until, that is, it opened fire on those landing troops. And that battery's guns were soon helped by 35mm guns located only 300 yards from the boat-bound invaders. The Japanese artillery on Bataan soon shot out the searchlights, but American and Filipino bullets, quote, like a 4th of July display, danced and sparkled pinkly, close quote, from the beach defenders. Army historian Lewis Morton continued. At point-blank range, they struck the surprised and confused Japanese, sank a number of boats, and caused many casualties. Beach defense officers at the scene, wrote an observer, reported that the slaughter of the Japanese and their barges was sickening. By this time, the moon had risen and the clouds had drifted away. Thus, when the 2nd Japanese Battalion approached the shore shortly before midnight, it was clearly visible to the men on the beach. There was now enough light for artillery fire, and the Americans opened up with everything they had. American and Filipino artillery on Corregidor and the other three Allied-held islands in Manila Bay pointed their guns at the approaching Japanese, unloading their remaining ammunition. To the Japanese in the small boats, it seemed as though a hundred guns rained red-hot steel on them. Eyewitnesses at Bataan described the scene as, quote, a spectacle that confounded the imagination, surpassing in grim horror anything we had ever seen before. But despite the artillery barrage confronting them, Japanese forces did make landfall, suffering massive casualties as a result. Historian Morton continued, The Japanese, who had believed they could come ashore without shedding blood, lost heavily during the landing. Estimates of 1st Battalion's casualties varied from 50 to 75%. Casualties in the 2nd Battalion exceeded those at the first landing, one Japanese officer placing the number of drowned alone in his own unit at 50%. Total casualties for both landings were estimated at several hundred, and one Japanese officer claimed that only 800 of the 2,000 men who made the attempt reached the shore. But tides and artillery weren't the only obstacles awaiting these landing forces. Marine historian Miller tells us that the Japanese soldiers struggled in the layers of oil that covered the beaches from ships sunk earlier in the siege and experienced great difficulty in landing personnel and equipment. Many of those who did make it to shore, especially in the second wave slash battalion, were crowded onto narrow beaches with 30 foot high cliffs on one side they were hit at nearly point-blank range with 30-caliber machine guns mounted on the cliffs above. Their officers were killed early on, and the survivors were then hit with grenades from the Marines on those cliffs. A Marine private described that it was like shooting ducks in a rain barrel. The Japanese would run up and down the beach, and each time there would be less men in the charges. Finally, they swam into the surf and hid behind boulders. The first wave of Japanese infantry had fared much better than the second. They came to shore around North Point. That's the easternmost or rightmost point of the three we've been discussing. And the U.S. Marine Company defending that area was stretched very thin. As you've already heard, the Marines and other beach defenders were staffed at 50% on the night of May 5th to 6th. Plus, the previous seven days of massive shelling had destroyed a majority of the beach defenses. A lieutenant told his men, I've got word that landing boats will attempt a landing. They'll be coming in here someplace, 
fixed bayonets. Then, according to marine historian Miller, he asked one of his privates to go to the cliff overlooking the beach and report on the location of the Japanese. Private looked at the beach and saw Japanese troops coming ashore only 30 feet away. The Marines placed a heavy fire on the Japanese as they climbed the steep cliffs and tossed Molotov cocktails down on the landing craft. In the darkness, however, the Japanese succeeded in bypassing many of the Marine positions. The fighting became bloody as the roughly 800 Japanese who did make land quickly overran the beleaguered beach defenses, forcing some of the Marine platoons to pull back from the beach. A corporal recalled, The gun next to me chattered, and, glancing to my right, I saw its targets, small, fleeting, darting in the shadows. Soon, grenades were landing close to Marine positions, quickly followed by enemy rifle fire. Another corporal, realizing the Japanese were getting close to his machine gun position, ran to a second position, only to find the two occupants already dead. He kept moving, crawling through the sand, making his way towards safety at the small Corregidor airstrip. Others in the same platoon, including Corporal Edwin Franklin, who we met earlier in this episode, were also trying to reach safety. Marine historian Miller recorded, Corporal Franklin saw a grenade land in the trail in front of him, which exploded and knocked him to the ground with a head wound. Franklin next hazily saw a Japanese soldier charging with fixed bayonet. The Marine said to himself, I ain't going this way, and jumped to engage the enemy with his own bayonet. Franklin was stabbed in the chest but succeeded in killing the Japanese soldier. He ran ahead down the trail past another enemy soldier who shot Franklin in the leg, but the Marine continued moving until he reached Melinda Tunnel. Another private, moving toward higher ground, suddenly ran into a Japanese soldier. They charged each other with fixed bayonets, and the private wounded the enemy soldier. The private then moved off toward the sound of fighting. Now, the men on Corregidor, for the most part, hadn't been involved with ground combat so far in the war. Instead, they'd been pummeled relentlessly by air and artillery. A sergeant recalled, We had been so accustomed to heavy artillery fire and bombs for so many months that the bullets kicking up dust around our feet seemed, at times, almost like raindrops hitting the dust. By 11.50 p.m., 50 minutes after the first landing, Japanese forces had reached Denver Hill, which is located about halfway between infantry and cavalry points. The Allied forces had planned to withdraw to the gun battery there and create a reinforced line in case of successful Japanese landings. But by the time the Allies got there, the Japanese had already slipped through the lines and had begun digging into that position. Army historian Lewis Morton wrote, It was only when he heard voices, quote, not American, that a Marine on Denver Hill realized the enemy had reached that point. The place, he wrote, seemed to have Japs all over it. When Marine Captain Noel Castle, he's the marksman who always carried two pearl-handled pistols, found out that the Japanese had taken over Denver Hill's battery, he assembled a company of Marines to drive the Japanese out of the battery. Gathering his men and disregarding cautions not to lead the attack himself, Castle told his company, Let's go up there and run the bastards off. Castle's men advanced, colliding with Japanese forces in a bloody face-to-face combat that halted the Japanese advance, but also repulsed the Marines. Meanwhile, wrote Marine historian Miller, 
Castle left the battle line and ran to an abandoned 30 caliber machine gun, which he put into working order while completely covered by enemy fire. Castle opened a devastating fire with the machine gun, forcing the Japanese to cover, which allowed the American advance to continue. The Japanese fell back to the Denver battery positions, but Castle was hit by Japanese machine gun fire and killed. With their commander down, the attack ground to a halt. Here's one of Castle's corporal's accounts of Castle's death. About a yard from the embankment on the north side of the road, he was hit by what I believe to be rifle or machine gun bullets. I saw him fall forward and disappear from sight over the edge of the road. A private checked on him, then told me that Captain Castle was hit in the chest and abdomen and was in a bad way. The private told me that the captain could not move and that he had loosened his pistol belt and other equipment. They never saw their captain alive again. Castle was posthumously awarded the Silver Star for his actions that morning. And those actions remind me of Sandy Nininger, the first World War II Medal of Honor recipient, who charged alone into a Japanese machine gun nest on Bataan a few months earlier with his rifle and a bag of grenades. He took out the enemies there at cost of his own life, and I told his story in episode 16. By 2 a.m., and we're now into May 6th, Japanese forces controlled Denver Hill and had established a north-south line that spanned the width of the island's tail. The landings and associated battle had, on both sides, been confusing and uncoordinated. Around 2 a.m., American leaders realized that only two battalions of Marines stood between the enemy line and Malinta Hill, where the majority of allies on Corregidor were located. For their part, the Japanese made no attempts to push closer to Malinta Hill between 2 and 4 a.m. on May 6, although they did repulse three Allied counterattempts to break the Denver Hill line. The Allies also used that time to bring out reinforcements. Artillerymen from the batteries on the island's head were released from their duties and sent to join the Marines. It was a difficult movement because they first had to run the gauntlet of artillery fire from Bataan on the left side of Melinta Hill. Then they had to move through Melinta Tunnel from its west entrance to its east, where they again encountered Japanese artillery. Allied leaders pulled men from their desk jobs in Melinta Tunnel. When one enlisted army man stated, I've never fired a rifle before. I'm in the finance department. He was told, You just go out and draw their fire, and the Marines will pick them off. Come on, son. Go out there and be the bait. Not even the tunnel rats were immune from being called into reinforcement regiments. When one Marine sergeant named Turner reached Malinta Tunnel with his reserve unit, they found the passage blocked by hundreds of tunnel rats soldiers who had no organization on the island and lived in the safety of the tunnel. These men wouldn't clear the corridor for the regimental reserve to pass into. Turner ordered his men, fix bayonets, boys, let's give them a nudge. The main passage of the tunnel was soon cleared. A Marine officer called another set of untrained reinforcements. A group of 500 sailors with 500 rifles, nothing more. These reserve men had been waiting in Melinda Tunnel since earlier that morning. They'd spent the time watching a nearly constant stream of wounded Marines paraded by them on litters on the way to the hospital ward, which lowered these reinforcements' already low morale. And when these reinforcements finally moved out of the tunnel, 
they immediately suffered their own casualties from the incessant artillery fire. By 6 a.m., the Allied reinforcements were in place. Fifteen minutes later, the Allies moved forward in what one Japanese official called a, quote, obstinate and bold counterattack, close quote. The Allies initially made gains, with the Japanese falling back, but a Japanese gun on Denver Hill's battery stalled the attack, and a Navy lieutenant and five of his men set out to silence it. Armed with grenades, the men crawled to within 100 feet of the gun, pulled the pins, and tossed them in, and they achieved their goal. But other Japanese forces quickly moved in and attacked the group, killing the lieutenant and four of his men. By this time, the Japanese felt desperate. They had planned to be at Molinta Hill by daybreak. That wasn't happening. Their ammunition was running low. They estimated being out by 11 a.m. And there were fewer than 1,000 Japanese troops facing at least 14,000 allies. At least, that's what the Japanese estimated. Over on Bataan Peninsula, General Homa, the officer in charge of all Japanese forces in the Philippines, was worried. Actually, he was panicking. He said, My God, I have failed miserably on this assault. But Homa's men weren't about to give up. Here's historian Lewis Morton. Small detachments of Japanese had infiltrated the left of the American line and were firing at the rear of the advancing troops. The Japanese had also set up their light artillery and were now using it with devastating effect against the American troops on the line. Finally, at 0800, Colonel Howard had decided to commit the last of his reserves, 60 men of the 59th Coast Artillery. By this time, the counterattack, though netting the Americans about 300 yards in some sectors, had bogged down for lack of supporting weapons and reinforcements. By this point, after five months of bombardment, most to all of the U.S. supporting weaponry and artillery was destroyed. The Allies had men and rifles and little else to support their troops. And then the Japanese tanks arrived. Their appearance caused some American and Filipino men on the front lines to bolt. Here's Morton again. By 10 a.m., the situations of the Americans was critical. The troops on the front line were pinned down securely. Attempts to move forward were discouraged by the enemy's heavy machine guns and light artillery. Movement to the rear only brought the men under fire from the heavier guns on Bataan and strafing aircraft. The tanks were in action and there were no weapons with which to stop them. Casualties had been heavy and the wounded men were still in the line. There were no litter bearers, and if there had been, the injured could not have been evacuated. The walking wounded were allowed to go to the rear, but most of those who availed themselves of this opportunity became, quote, litter or graves registration cases. Already between 600 and 800 Allied men had been killed and about a thousand more wounded. To continue the fight when there was no hope of being able to hold out longer than a few more hours would be a needless sacrifice of lives. And it was quite apparent to US leaders that they had no more men or artillery to hold off an expected Japanese landing on the coming night, this time on the island's head. With their light artillery and tanks, it was expected that the Japanese on each of the island sides would reach Malinta Tunnel. The results, American leaders thought, would be complete slaughter. Thus, at 10 a.m. on May 6, General Jonathan Wainwright, who was in charge of all U.S. Army forces in the Philippines, decided to surrender 
in order to sacrifice one day of freedom in exchange for several thousand lives. Like General King, who had surrendered Bataan four weeks earlier, Wainwright had made his estimate and concluded there was nothing to be gained by further resistance. Wainwright had a surrender message broadcast to General Homa, and the Americans and Filipinos on Corregidor began destroying all weapons larger than 45 caliber. The surrender time was appointed for noon, at which time the Americans would lower and burn the U.S. flag, replacing it with a white one. Wainwright then messaged President Roosevelt and General MacArthur. With broken heart and head bowed in sadness but not in shame, I report that today I must arrange terms for the surrender of the fortified islands of Manila Bay. Please say to the nation that my troops and I have accomplished all that is humanly possible and that we have upheld the best traditions of the United States and its army. With profound regret and with continued pride in my gallant troops, I go to meet the Japanese commander. After capture, the 4th Marines and the other Americans on Corregidor were sent to the Cabanatuan POW camp. Over the next three years, many of them would be transported to work camps in Japan. Included among those transported men were Colonel Edwin Franklin and Lieutenant Colonel George Hamilton. Corporal Edwin Franklin left Cabanatuan in fall 1942 and was sent to the Tanagawa POW camp near Osaka, Japan. By May 1945, he'd been transferred twice and was now at a third Osaka area work camp where he worked loading and unloading cargo ships for a Japanese transport company. He was liberated after 40 months in POW camps in September 1945. He remained in the Marines after the war, retiring in 1956 with nearly 20 years of service. He eventually moved to California where he died in Los Angeles in December 1997, two days shy of his 78th birthday. Lieutenant Colonel George Hamilton left the Cabanatuan POW camp in October 1944 and traveled to Japan as part of the ill-fated Oroko Maru tragedy, which I've spoken about in several other episodes. He survived the voyage. However, the 51-year-old died in a Japanese hospital just two weeks later. His remains were cremated and placed in one of two wooden boxes with a hundred other POWs, 71 Americans, 16 British, 10 Dutch, and 3 Australian. The boxes were placed in a Fukuoka City Cemetery's grave that was enclosed in a small picket fence and marked, quote, Prisoners of War Communal Grave, May 1945, close quote. After the war, those communal remains were reburied at Jefferson Barracks Military Post in Missouri, where they rest today. Back on May 6, 1942, as the Japanese forces moved ever closer to Melinta Hill, a 22-year-old telegraph operator furiously typed out a Morse code message that was basically a play-by-play of what was happening on Corregidor told by a young, inexperienced man and revealing the horror and helplessness he felt witnessing the destruction and then the surrender. It was the last Allied message off the island before its fall. So be sure to hit the follow button because there will be more on that next time. This is Left Behind.
Thank you for listening. You can find pictures, maps, and sources about the 4th Marines on Corregidor on the Left Behind Facebook page and website and on Instagram at Left Behind Podcast. The links are all in the show description. In this episode, I've been able to give only a general overview of the battle for Corregidor. If you'd like to know more of the details, I suggest the booklet from Shanghai to Corregidor, Marines in the Defense of the Philippines by J. Michael Miller and the book, The War in the Pacific, The Fall of the Philippines by Lewis Morton. Both of these are accessible for free online, and I've added links in the show description and on the website. If you enjoy this podcast, please support this work by leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Left Behind is research, written, and produced by me, Anastasia Harmon. Voiceovers by Paul Sutherland, Tyler Harmon, Jake Harenberg, and Mike Davis. And remember to subscribe to Left Behind because you won't want to miss next time's radio broadcast that brought the entire United States to tears. <laughs>